Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In the National Heritage Museum in Lexington, Massachusetts, there's an odd little artifact. It looks like a child's tricycle, with a handle on the back, presumably designed to push it, and a seat sitting on three wheels. But it's not a child's tricycle. To start with, it's sized for an adult to ride. Second, the hubs of the wheels are all offset, so it would roll with a bumping, uneven manner. Third, the seat is, well, it's not really a seat. It's a stuffed goat. The mechanical goat wasn't a toy or something used by actors or comedian. No, in reality, the goat was designed to be ridden by initiates to the Odd Fellows Lodge in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, during the first quarter of the 20th century. And yes, in case it's not clear, the folks riding the goat were adult men. (laughs) So what the hell is that about, right? Why were adult men in fraternal clubs like the Oddfellows going around riding on wacky mechanical goats? And why a goat, right? Why not a horse? And why did men want to join these weird clubs and ride on mechanical goats anyway? So today, as part of our series on clubs and secret societies, we're talking about fraternal orders in the 19th century United States. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We also want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're over halfway to our goal of $300 per month. When we hit that, we'll be getting new recording equipment. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't like my woohoo? Woohoo! Um, so thank you to your generous souls who are already giving, and particularly our auger and excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Colin, Peggy, Chris, Danielle, Maggie, and Lauren. Your generosity will go down in history. Listener, if you're not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. This reminds me of, like, boys, like, riding in shopping carts to be like, oh, in order to get into our secret treehouse club, <laughs> you have to ride in a shopping cart like down, down a hill. Or something. A hill yeah. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That... They never grow up. No, first. and that, that activity is, like, universal. Like, all men <laughs> at some point do that. Okay. There's a famous article by Robert Darnton that's on, like, every single syllabus and every single history research seminar called The Great Cat Massacre. In this article, Darnton tells the story of how two printer's apprentices in France during the 1730s held a fake inquisition with their friends and killed dozens and dozens of cats. Which sounds totally crazy and is totally crazy, but actually tells us so much about French culture during this moment. Actually, it's the wackiness of that story that makes it useful, Darton says. Sure, we can learn a lot about culture from things that seem familiar and make sense to us, things like, say, clothing or paintings or television shows, but we can actually learn more by really digging into the things that make no sense to us at all. 
So Darton unpacks this cat massacre to explore every little piece of the event, from the symbolic meaning of the cats in modern Europe to the intricate hierarchies of apprenticeships. Not only does it help us to understand this incomprehensible moment, but it sort of serves as an entry point into the larger French culture at this historical moment. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with mechanical goat riding? Well, it's that for American cultural historians, fraternal orders have sort of the same appeal as a cat massacre. The rituals are totally wacky. Riding a mechanical goat makes no sense to us. So why did men think that it was not only worthwhile, but also masculine and honorable? Fraternal orders, which are basically just men's clubs, but but fancier, um, were immensely popular in the United States during the 19th century. The two most popular clubs were the Freemasons and the Oddfellows. The Freemasons, despite what you might think you know from the History Channel or the excellent film National Treasure, <laughs> is not exactly an ancient order, but one that really came to life in the early 18th century London. By the 1730s and 1740s, there were already lodges established in the American colonies. But masonry looked nothing like it does now. It was simply a small-scale boys' club, where men might gather to have a pint and share a meal. Over the first quarter of the 19th century, the club became much more popular, but not because of a desire for brotherhood and camaraderie. It had much more to do with how much liquor the clubs provided. Before they built their own lodges, Masons often met in taverns and drank so much that they often had rules written into their constitutions that required that all lodge members pay their tavern bills before they could leave the meeting. But during the first quarter of the 19th century, the Masons began to encounter serious criticism as an organization. First, it was having a bit of an identity crisis. Each lodge operated completely separately with its own rituals, rules, and customs. It also wasn't clear exactly what the club was for. Was it just a men's club for drinking and conversation, or was it something bigger, more important? Another part of the problems facing masonry was linked to how much drinking went on at the meetings. After all, temperance, the political movement with a goal of ending alcohol consumption, was becoming a major component of white middle-class identity during the antebellum era, which made the heavy drinking of lodge meetings look sort of classless and trashy. Some members also started to complain that the lodge spent so much time and money on alcohol that they weren't doing anything else, including donating money to help Masons in trouble. One Mason in 1818 did the research and determined that their lodge had spent over $700 on alcohol in the previous year, but only $60 on donations to needy members. But the most serious criticism came from those who accused the Masons of being murderous Satan worshippers or of being a cabal that was secretly pulling the strings of the government. There wasn't really any evidence that Masons were Satan worshippers, but there was one dramatic incident that added fuel to the anti-Masonic fire. A Virginian named William Morgan, who had recently moved to Rochester, New York, and who claimed to be a Master Mason, we'll explain what that means later, was turned away by the Rochester Lodge that he tried to join. Morgan apparently had been drinking and gambling, which violated the character clauses of Mason membership. Morgan was insulted, and so, to get even, he made plans to publish a book detailing all of the Mason's secrets. 
Masons in the area tried to convince him not to publish by taking out full-page ads in the newspaper reminding him that he'd taken an oath not to reveal the club's secrets. But Morgan wasn't impressed. At the same time, Morgan was arrested and jailed for theft and debt. For those who opposed Masonry and believed it was some kind of secret cabal, this seemed like clear evidence that the Masons were trying to stop Morgan from telling their secrets. But the book project went forward, even with Morgan in jail. Morgan was released from jail, but then disappeared without a trace while en route to Fort Niagara in Youngstown, New York. Soon, the explanation that many anti-Masons landed on was that Masons had kidnapped him and thrown him into the Niagara River. Or, as one historian that I read on this described it, Lake Niagara. <laughs> Which I was like, that's not a thing. Yeah, that's not a thing. Um, although a murder was never proven and nobody was ever found, Morgan's disappearance fueled a significant anti-Mason movement including a semi-successful political third party that at one point included William Seward, Thurlow Weed, and Millard Fillmore as members. They're all, Thurlow Weed. All, like, all prominent like New York politicians. Yeah, is what they means. sound like it. <laughs> Membership in the organization dropped by some 60,000 between 1820 and 1830, while the anti-Mason movement was at its peak. The Masons who stayed made an effort to overhaul the club, specifically to get rid of the association that many Americans had between Masons and alcohol. Instead of drinking and revelry, lodges increasingly turned to ritual. As historian Mark Carnes notes, the budget once allocated to liquor now went to the purchase of robes and other items to be used in elaborate rituals. Initially, these rituals relied heavily on the use of masks. Suddenly, a member wasn't just John Smith, the local bank manager. He was Master Mason, or an odd fellow, a member of an ancient and solemn order with power over those on the ranks below him. Eventually, Mark Carn says, those masks went away. I think that this is one of those cat massacre moments where the thing that something that seems really weird actually has this larger meaning. Because typically, we would think that the masks are meant to hide the identity because this was all supposed to be super secret, right? And it was. Almost all orders made initiates swear on a Bible or another holy book that they would never reveal the secrets of their order. But then why would the masks go away? It's because members weren't supposed to utterly transform. They were only supposed to take on a new and powerful role. Without masks, the man could imagine himself as that powerful person and consider the rites and rituals as himself. In other words, he wasn't supposed to transform and be, you know, this other, a character, right? Or a role. He was supposed to embody that position. Okay. Question. Um, this Morgan, Mm -hmm. he wasn't allowed in the Masons because he drank too much, but the Masons basically just drank all the time? This was as they were changing. Okay. But yes, that's a weird contradiction because they were super contradictory during this time period. Okay. Because like, yes, some Masonic lodges, especially early in the 19th century, like really early in the 19th century, like that's what they did is they like just drank a lot. But then they became super conscious of that, like self-conscious of it. And so many Masons were saying we need to get rid of all the drinking and so they would they kind of started to change their image they were really conscious of changing their image and so morgan apparently tried to get into a lodge that had changed its image and had like morality rules if that makes sense yes makes sense 
Masonic rituals were deeply religious, specifically deeply Christian, but in an unusual way. One of the requirements for membership in the Masons, then as now, was an admission of faith in, quote, the supreme architect of universal nature, a highly stylized way of saying faith in God. The rituals used by the Masons, developed in their first forms at some point in the 18th century, spoke to an ancient history of the order rooted in the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem after its destruction at the hands of the evil Babylonians. Initiation rituals put men into the position of pilgrims, sent by God into dangerous enemy territory to rebuild the temple. In some lodges, initiates were told they needed to dig through the ruins of the old temple. Really, this was just piles of rocks and sticks, <laughs> where they would eventually find a trap door. The door would be opened, and one of the initiates would have to be lowered using ropes into a vault, where he would find objects and documents that would help the new members to understand the passwords and other Masonic secrets. Initiates were told that these rituals were ancient and unchanging, passed down since the days of the Old Testament. This was not true. Yeah, but- <laughs> The rituals weren't all that old. They were invented in the mid-1700s, and they certainly weren't unchanging. Nearly every lodge had its own spin on its own rituals and ritualistic language. While these odd rituals had always sort of been part of masonry, after the tumultuous years of anti-mason fervor, rituals started to become more formal and more integral to Masonic life, intentionally created to help change the perception that the organization was either all about immoral drinking and revelry or worshiping Satan. But even then, why create such archaic, bizarre rituals based on interpretations of the book of Ezekiel, which is where all this Jerusalem temple stuff is supposed to come from? I mean, it does sort of make sense, right? White middle-class Americans were super into Protestant Christianity, of course. But when you really actually get down into the language, it gets super weird again. For instance, Mark Carnes spends a lot of time analyzing one prayer recorded by an Episcopalian reverend and Masonic high priest named John Brown, who was a member of a lodge in Newburgh, New York, for something like 60 years. If you read the prayer quickly, it seems like boilerplate Christian stuff, if a little old-fashioned, with a lot of junk about temples. The prayer talks a lot about sin and the imperfections of man and makes reference to men walking on the thorny path of life and asks the great architect of the universe for forgiveness and for admittance into the temple of eternal light and life. Again, this seems totally expected. Sin and salvation and all that just seems like kind of normal Christianity stuff. But as Mark Carnes points out, what's really unusual about it, especially for a 19th century prayer, is that it makes zero mention of Jesus, who Christians believe is the only gateway to salvation. In fact, the prayer and all the rituals of the Masons are based on the Old Testament, which, if you know anything about the Bible, is all about struggle, being lost in the desert. There's lots of war. There's lots of death. And this is particularly weird, given that when this prayer was first constructed, and even in the decades after, as it was just recited over and over again, the U.S. was greatly impacted by the theology of the Second Great Awakening, the key piece of which was millennialism, or the idea that through good works and perfection, humans could bring about the second coming of Christ and usher in a millennia of peace. It was an era of theology much more concerned with the New Testament than the Old. So what was the deal with this prayer? 
Well, Mark Carnes argues that the Second Great Awakening also saw women becoming more involved than ever in American religious life. Mid-19th century gender constructs suggested that women were inherently more moral and more spiritual than men, and that men needed women to act as their moral compass, influencing them and keeping them on the straight and narrow. It was also an era where men were expected to practice strict self-control in order to act with gentility and restraint. If you were to ask most 19th century historians to conjure up the stereotypical image of the era, they would very likely point to the trope of the parlor. Sentimental magazine etchings depicting a middle-class family sitting together in a carefully appointed parlor, quiet, restrained, and tasteful. Women were the ones who constructed and controlled these internal private spaces, including the men within them. Even the ways that antebellum Christians thought about heaven seemed feminized, as people began to think about death as just a step into a place that replicated earth. To some, it felt like heaven would just be another parlor. Men resented the new role of women in religious life. As one Baptist clergyman moaned, quote, Within, in her lowest spiritual form, as the ruling spirit she inspires and sometimes writes the sermons. Without, as the bulk of his congregation, she watches over the minister's orthodoxy, verified his texts, visits his schools, and harasses his sick. The preacher who thunders so defiantly against spiritual foes is trembling all the time beneath the critical eye that is watching him with so merciless an accuracy of his texts. Impelled, guided, censured by women, we can hardly wonder if, in nine cases out of ten, the parson turns woman himself, end quote. That is so I know, it is. It's terrible, isn't it? Masonry offered a safe way for men to escape the parlor. In terms of religion, Masonry created a kind of hyper-masculinized theology where God was an angry father, a workman, an architect like them who kept secrets. Carnes describes the deity like this. Man's dependence on God, as Ezekiel warned, was absolute. Without access to his long-lost word, man's depravity was infinite, his prospects for salvation non-existent. Man must struggle mightily to discover his ineffable secrets, to endure the privations of captivity, to persist through adversity, and to dig deep into the mysteries of the past. So the Masons created a theology in which it wasn't Christ who gave them salvation, but their commitment to the quest of understanding the ancient mysteries of Masonry. This was a dark, hard, scary Christianity, one without emphasis on love and charity that was so important in genteel middle-class society. So to take this one step further, as white men felt like their lives were becoming hemmed in and restrained, in other words, as they felt themselves being feminized, masonry allowed them a world that relied on industry, honor, and fraternity for their salvation. They're like, we'll just make a new religion. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. And they don't, cause they don't think about this as like being contradictory. I mean, it is contradictory, but somehow they're able to kind of like... They don't think about this as being like yeah, it's like an ex- it's an accessory to yeah. their current Christianity, kind of. The Odd Fellows, founded in 1819, had similar rituals, but while the Masonic rituals differed greatly from lodge to lodge, the Odd Fellows kept far tighter control on things. 
Oddfellows had supposedly ancient and generally Christian aspects of their rituals. In one ceremony meant for those achieving their 28th degree in Odd Fellowship, called Night of the Sun, involved the child, or applicant for the 28th degree, asking Father Adam, which is uh, the worshipful master, for freedom from his original sin. The child was walked around the lodge while the Father Adam talked about how vile and awful men are, and how they need to be brought out of the wilderness of sin. As he spoke, the child, who was wearing formal symbolic clothing, would be undressed and redressed in normal street clothes, then finally covered in dirt and dust to utterly humble him. As this demonstrates, both the Masons and the Oddfellows placed emphasis on how men were sinful and bad, and that life was a difficult trial and God was angry. Salvation was only achieved through individual persistence through struggle, not through a kind and forgiving Christ. Again, as Carnes describes this, quote, If middle-class men built new temples, it was because existing ones had proven deficient. If they created strange new gods, it was because the ones with which they were familiar had failed them. And if they chose to evoke spiritual wastelands, it was because such representations in some way resembled the world in which they lived, end quote. Of course, fraternal orders were also homosocial spaces. Women were strictly prohibited from membership. In many cases, they were even barred from entry into lodges. Uh, funny side story here. One of my favorite television shows is this CBC show called The Murdoch Mysteries. And there's a whole episode that's all about, like, a murder within a Masonic lodge. And mm-hmm. it's the whole, it's very complicated. But the premise is that the person who was the, – the Mason who was being initiated – the person who's being initiated was actually a woman dressing as a man in order to get into this lodge. And it's all about this underworld of women who are secretly passing as men. And it's like, oh, my God, imagine <laughs> women in the lodge. It's like this whole big thing. OK, anyway, watch Murdoch Mysteries. <laughs> uh Of course, this did prove problematic, this barring of women. It did prove problematic, though, during the anti-Mason movement as women uh increasingly worried about all matters spiritual, began to criticize masonry out of the belief that it tempted their men away from church and into mysterious, even dangerous worlds of these secret rituals. In the 1850s and 1860s, masons began to try to find ways to convince women that the masons were a force of good rather than evil. Masonic publications began to cater to women by including articles by the wives of Masons and short stories that helped women to understand the goings-on of Masonic lodges without revealing any of the secrets. One story called Too Late at the Lodge is about a young, recently married couple whose new marriage suddenly grows cold when the husband joins the Masonic lodge and spends several nights a week out with his brothers. The wife suspects him of frittering away his time and abandoning her. But one night, the mason invites his wife to accompany him to a meeting. They get, like, special dispensation to let her into the, into the lodge. There, the wife learns that her husband has been spending these evenings not drinking and worshipping Satan, but ministering to the poor and doing charitable work. In fact, some Masons and Oddfellows started to explain the need for fraternal orders precisely because men were, according to this antebellum um, way that they thought about gender, naturally less moral. 
If they were women, they wouldn't need the help of other good men to keep them on the straight and narrow. The principles of odd fellowship, according to one member, were already, quote, the innate principles of a woman's nature. In a short story about Masons, uh, a Mason character tells a woman, quote, You were born Masons. Any initiation or ceremony would be superfluous. Therefore, we do not insult you by any such propositions. The Lodge served, then, the same role as women did by helping naturally immoral men to be better. This became sort of a selling point of the Lodge and what made it both appealing and acceptable to middle-class white men concerned about their reputations. Masons and Oddfellows especially began to point out that the Lodge was actually a great option for men who craved the camaraderie of other men, but who did not want to frequent establishments of ill repute or take part in immoral pastimes. As historian Amy Flugrad Jackish notes, quote, Time spent at fraternity meetings was time not spent in the tavern, the gaming house, or involved in other immoral activities, end quote. In her research, Flugrad Jackish found that the Freemasons and Oddfellows both became interwoven with temperance and used this as yet another selling point. Men who joined the Masons or Oddfellows were marking their commitment to abstain from alcohol. In Virginia, fraternal orders also police their members' behaviors in other ways. Adultery, theft, contempt, and immoral conduct could all get you kicked out. And card playing could get you a serious talking to. You're such a mom. That'll get you a talking to. (laughs) So, yeah, it's interesting how over the course of the antebellum period, they go from, like, at the beginning of the 19th century being, like, their reputation was for hard drinking. Mm -hmm. And then by 1850, 1860, they were like, oh, that's the moral group because they are the temperance folks. Yeah. Well, that's Mm -hmm. kind of just how that's more generally culture was like that. Mm -hmm. So in the 18th century, you have like this libertine sort of rake culture thing. That's like defining masculinity. Mm -hmm. And but 19th century masculinity is defined by restraint. Exactly. Right. Right, right, right. While the Masons and Oddfellows gave men a masculinized theology that allowed them to escape, at least temporarily, from genteel antebellum society, two other organizations allowed them a different experience altogether. The short-lived Grand Order of the Iroquois and the Improved Order of Red Men, which somehow still exists, um, didn't just give men a hyper-masculine space to enjoy, it gave them the chance to play Indian. The Grand Order of the Iroquois was founded by Lewis Henry Morgan, who we've actually discussed before in our bone collecting episode. Morgan was a lawyer from a teeny town called Aurora on the shore of Cayuga Lake, named for one of the tribes of the Haudenosaunee, which, side note, home of my alma mater, Wells College, um, one of my favorite places on this earth. The town itself is built on the old site of the Cayuga village called Chonadote, or Peach Town, as the English called it, which was destroyed by American General John Sullivan during his campaign against the Iroquois during the American Revolution. Morgan was not particularly successful or an impassioned lawyer, and so he actually spent a great deal of time in a men's literary club, I think that he had found, helped to found, called the Order of the Gordian Knot. In the 1840s, Morgan read a novel by Washington Irving about Christopher Columbus, which, for some reason, touched off an interest in him in Native American culture. Given, can you imagine reading? 
No. <laughs> Reading a book about Christopher Columbus and being like, well, I am now really interested in Native Americans. No. Uh, but that's what happened. Given his home in New York State, Morgan proposed to the other members of the Gordian Knot that they completely overhaul their society and base it on, quote, the whole history, customs, exploits, dress, and mythic lore of the Iroquois. Sounds not racist at all. No, no, no. Not one bit. <laughs> Morgan called the new club the Grand Order of the Iroquois, later called the New Confederacy of the Iroquois. Other than the language used in the ceremonies, the club was indistinguishable from the Masons or Oddfellows or any number of other kinds of fraternal orders. The order created what Philip Deloria calls a usable past, just like the Masons and Oddfellows did, to give the order a sense of ancientness. The overarching theme of the ceremonies used by the Grand Order was that American liberty and democracy needed to be protected by men who were honorable, noble, rooted in their connection to the American landscape. Deloria describes it this way, quote, by claiming to be mystic descendants of the Iroquois and using costumed rituals to bring the imagined to life, the new Confederacy hoped to gain emotional access to these native muses who would help them proclaim American identity, end quote. The initiation ritual used by the Grand Order, uh, which Morgan called in Indianation, involved the spirits of dead Indians rising from the grave to lecture the assembled men about how white men had mistreated Native Americans. Then, someone pretending to be the voice of the Great Spirit tells the men that he's very sad because he's watched his children die and that the only way to make him less sad is by preserving Indian rituals and customs. In order to do this, the white men initiates must be reborn as Iroquois children themselves, giving them new Indian names and wearing Indian costumes. That's crazy. Yes. At the same time, Morgan and the other Grand Order members weren't quite satisfied with their ritual in Indian Nation. They weren't sure it was authentic enough, which it wasn't authentic at all, right? <laughs> Uh, in hopes of learning more so that they could use what they learned to create better rituals, Morgan and other Grand Order members, particularly a man named Isaac Hurd, began to travel to do research. Initially, they planned to do research in the New York State archives. But while Morgan was in Albany, he met Ely S. Parker, born Hassan Awanda, who was a member of the Seneca tribe from the Tonawanda Reservation, which is a small res- uh, which is a small reservation here in western New York. It's sort of overlapping corners of Genesee, Erie, and Niagara counties. It's kind of Akron, more or less. Parker studied law, but was unable to practice because he was Native American, and his family placed a great emphasis on education, particularly on fostering relations with white New Yorkers. Parker invited Morgan and his comrades from the Order to visit his family home to learn more about the real traditions of the Iroquois. Thus began a long and fruitful relationship between Morgan and Parker, and also marked a career shift for Morgan. From that point on, he worked primarily as an ethnographer, studying and documenting the history and tradition of the Iroquois. With him, he took the entire Grand Order, which soon shifted from a fraternal literary club to a fraternal ethnographical club, dedicated to preserving the history and culture of the Iroquois. Isn't that bonkers? Yes. It's just wild. It's wild. And I've studied Morgan before, and I had no idea. I'd never heard this part of the story. 
We talked um, a little bit about some of Morgan's theories in our bone collecting episode, and I don't want to stray too far from our focus on fraternal order, so I'm not going to go into great depths about what he writes um, about or interprets the how he interprets the Iroquois. But there is this one part of his writing about the Iroquois that I think is really important. Both Lewis Morgan and his colleague Isaac Hurd recorded Iroquois culture through the assumption that Indians were disappearing. Like, as if they weren't going to exist anymore? Yes, like, this, it's this, like, myth of the vanishing Indian that is really prominent during this time period. Mm-hmm. The Grand Order wasn't the only club using mythology about Native Americans in fraternal rites. The improved Order of Red Men traces its history back to the Sons of Liberty and the men who took part in the Boston Tea Party, who, you may recall, tossed all that tea while dressed as Iroquois warriors. Although that's probably not true. It's probably apocryphal. Yeah. So the the, the people who threw the tea into the harbor were dressed as Indians, mm-hmm. but the improved Order of Red Men... Probably has no connection to it. Okay. So it's another one of those invented histories. Histories. Right. Philip Deloria talks about the Red Men as being based on the belief, popular during the Jacksonian era, that the Native Americans were all gone, either banished from the United States or simply dead. The Red Men then were using bits and pieces of Native American culture in essentially the same way the Masons were using bits and pieces of Old Testament history. But Morgan's Grand Order, he argues, was a bit more complicated. It was based on Morgan and his pal's interests in ethnography, but also their belief that the Iroquois were, one, different from their forebears, and, secondly, on the cusp of extinction. Because of this, Morgan and his buddies were practicing salvage ethnography. This is the preserving of their story so that when they did die out, the Grand Order could basically reenact Indianness. In this really bizarro twist of logic, Morgan believed that he was the one preserving authentic Iroquois life and culture, because the real living Iroquois, even those who became his friends, like Ely Parker, were inauthentic Indians, because they lived in a culture that had changed since the appearance of Europeans. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Deloria states it this way, quote, The only culture allowed to define real Indian people was a traditional culture that came from the past rather than the present. Even as they continued to live and propagate then, Indian people in the present were necessarily regarded as inauthentic because their culture did not conform to that of the second Iroquois epoch. That second Iroquois epoch is like a, a thing that Morgan wrote about. Like he okay. like divided up Iroquois history into sections. Right. It's not really important. So kind of classical Iroquois-ness. Exactly. Right. Real Indian people both had and had not disappeared. For pragmatic reasons, right. Morgan and his proto-ethnographers saw a select few as being close enough to tradition. Their memories were authentic even if their lives were not, end quote. This reminds me so much of this thing that April and I saw about Yelp reviews. And it's, it, he was talking about what? No, it was a, it was a, a scholarly presentation okay. at the Urban History Association like years ago. And he was talking about like reviews. <sighs> I know what reviews. you're going to say. And mm-hmm. yeah, the places that people, you know, reviewed the most, they were places that were quote unquote authentic. Right. But the, all the people posting these things were white people talking uh, about yeah. what is authentic. Right. Like authentic Mexican food. Right. But it wasn't any actual Chinese Mexicans food. like saying, right. this is authentic Mexican food. Right. Or, right. right. So it was like, 
yeah. such a weird thing. Yeah. Like, the, this whiteness, like, there, there's, like, an obsession with, like, delineating what is authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, it reminds me a little bit, too, of even the conversation that Avril and I just had about, like, this idea that, like, um, brown brown people could not have made, like, the pyramids and stuff, so it must have been aliens, because white people are the only people who could have possibly done that. Right. So it's this idea that, like, the Indians were great while they, like, had it, you know, while they were, like, on their own, but now they've kind of, like, lost it. So they need white people to, like, take over. Right. And preserve their Indianness for them. Right. And the fact that it's, like, tied up in this fraternal order culture of the early 19th century makes it even more wild. Because mm-hmm. they have these rituals that they're following that are not in any way connected to actual Iroquois ceremonies. Right. And what makes it even more, like, up, frankly, is that Morgan and this other guy, Isaac Hurd, actually do really good, like, ethnographic research on them. And it's really important. (laughs) It's, like, really important to our understanding of the the Iroquois. And they did it with the cooperation of the Iroquois. But it was still so paternalistic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it just is a whole weird... Very, like, white nighty. Like, we will come in here and preserve you from your fate, which we have actually kind of caused, like, or which our ancestors caused. You know, it's kind of... Right, exactly. And cringy. Philip Deloria talks about how this is like, this comes from his book, which is called Playing Indian. And it's all about the ways that white people appropriate Native American culture and play at being Indians while simultaneously destroying the lives of actual Indians. Because it's not the living Indians that matter, it's the idea of Indians. Mm Mm-hmm. So historian Mark Carnes interpreted the Grand Order in a very different way than historian Philip Deloria did. He focused more on the Grand Order's use of the themes of fatherhood and childhood. Just as he believed that Protestant Christianity had been feminized during the antebellum era, Carnes argues that men were struggling with fatherhood during the same time period. Since men were not naturally inclined, according to this mindset, to be good or moral, the role of mothers was particularly important when raising sons. He argues that men often remained in their parents' homes and therefore under the influence of their mothers until their late 20s or later, when they then married and established their own homes, effectively delaying adulthood. At the same time, fatherhood had also changed. The market revolution meant that most men were leaving the house to go to work, making it so that fathers were spending less time at home. Ideas about separate spheres also meant that many men believed that raising children was the purview of women and women only. Given this sort of social backdrop, it's very interesting that so many fraternal orders used this imagery of fathers and sons. I think it was the Odd Fellows, right? We were just talking about who used this imagery of like father, father Adam, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Carnes argues that fraternal ritual evolved during this time to simulate a kind of transition from childhood and its feminine associations to the hard realities of manhood. He states this, quote, In every major order, at least one ritual developed each of the following themes. One, the initiate at the outset of his task was portrayed as immature or unmasculine. Two, he overcame obstacles as he embarked on a difficult journey through the stages of childhood and adolescence. 
Three, this journey or ordeal reached a climax when he was killed or nearly killed by angry father figures. Four, he was reborn as a man in a new family of approving brethren and patriarchs. So a very masculine family. There are definitely aspects of this in the Grand Orders in Indian Nation, of course, when the bad, sinful white children are chastised by the dead Indian fathers and are then reborn as Indians themselves. So we know that fraternal orders served as a way for men to reinforce masculinity that they believed was lacking or somehow threatened. And we've explored a number of ways that orders symbolically accomplish that. But what about the goat? (laughs) Goat riding was long associated with witchcraft and in occult lore was associated with vaguely demonic or satanic activities. According to historian William Moore, there were no references to goats or goat riding in either fraternal order records or in criticism of orders until the 1840s, which, as you might recall, was just about the moment when anti-masonry was all the rage. A major component of anti-fraternal order conspiracies were rooted in people's curiosity and distrust of the secret initiation rites and ceremonies. So most of the conspiracy theories that arose during the panic focused on crazy things people imagined might be going on. In 1845, an anonymously published book called Odd Fellowship Exposed described a menacing and probably totally fictional ceremony where a man being initiated into the order, was forced to ride a large black and white goat. The book was reprinted with a new title in 1847, featuring an illustration of an odd fellow riding a large hairy goat. Actually, because the man riding the goat is wrapped in robes, barefoot, and carrying a weird urn, Moore thinks that the image was stuck in from a pre-existing print block from religious texts. Goats and goat riding, which smacked of ancient satanic rituals, was a manifestation of what antebellum people feared fraternal orders were up to behind closed doors. But after the Civil War, what started as frantic conspiracy theories actually turned into ritual. The millennial spirit of the Second Great Awakening before the war gave way to the excesses of the Gilded Age, As the millennial spirit of the Second Great Awakening before the war gave way to the excesses of the Gilded Age, fraternal orders started to actually embrace their outrageous reputation. Moore suggests that by the 1880s, the goat had actually turned into something of an inside joke, a wink and a nudge shared by brothers in secret societies. The goat suddenly appeared in humorous poems and jokes published in Lodge Publications, Even lithographs riffed on the idea of riding the goat, such as one that featured a costumed blindfolded dog in the kind of the same way as that famous painting of the dogs playing poker. Uh, one, One blindfolded dog riding on a goat while brother dogs watch on. Yet another lithograph, this one manufactured by Courier and Ives, paints a similar scene, but with caricatures of black men performing the goat riding ritual. While the dog lithograph is lighthearted, the black caricature image has clear white supremacist intentions. I find this one particularly powerful. Of course, it's important that it appears in the late 1880s, just as the American South entered what historians call the nadir of race relations. But it's also important because during the 1880s, black people established their own fraternal orders in record numbers. 
groups like the Grand United Order of True Reformers, the Ancient Order of Pilgrims, the Orders of Calanth, and the Orders of the Golden Circle proliferated, popping up everywhere from Kentucky to Illinois. Scholars Theta Scotchpole and Jennifer Osler have found in their demographic research that these organizations seemed to arise in moments when Black Americans were cut off from other ways of asserting themselves as citizens. Black men were also banned from joining the major fraternal orders, including the Freemasons, the Odd Fellows, and the Knights of Pythias, who we haven't talked about very much in this episode, but those were the big three. The Knights of Pythias was like basically the same thing as the Odd Fellows. Black men then established their own groups, like those ones I just mentioned, as well as some that were just exact parallels to those big white groups. There was an independent Black Order of Masons, a Black Order of the Odd Fellows, a Black Order of the Knights of Pythias, and a Black Order of the Elks. And they're all, they're not associated with the White Lodge. They just take it upon themselves to create their own. Right. So lithographs like the one by Currier and Ives depicting characters of Black fraternal order members taking part in a well-known fraternal activity, that's riding the goat, remember, were meant to communicate how ridiculous it would be for Black men to participate in fraternal rights. The white people who consumed those images understood the subtext completely. From their point of view, these people would never actually be capable of true membership in respectable middle-class organizations, just like they were incapable of all the rights of American citizenship. Black men would have to replicate their own fraternal rights. Since, you know, everyone kind of assumed they were just buffoons, the resulting rights would be absurd and laughable. Moore goes even further, explaining that not only do the images depict both dogs and blacks riding the goat, they depict the activity in totally different ways. The dogs are meant to poke gentle fun at white fraternal order members, and so are depicted riding a docile, well-controlled goat. But in the images of black caricatures, the goat is kicking and bucking, trying to throw its black rider off its back. The black men, in other words, were incapable even of controlling the goat. As Moore sums it up, quote, fraternalists thus made riding the goat emblematic of civilized individuals containing chaos, of the status quo maintaining order, end quote. White fraternalists riding the goat symbolized the white men who controlled the potential chaos of Gilded Age society. At the turn of the century, white fraternal orders continued to use the goat as a way to poke fun at those outside their orders. As a side note here, I want to make it clear. No one yet has actually ridden a goat. There's no actual goat riding happening. It's all just kind of like the idea of goat riding, okay? <laughs> so uh, in 1901, the New York Times reported that a man named Samuel Robinson had received a citation for keeping a goat in his house, which he used to represent the Knights of Pythias in parades. Another guy, Frank Gibson, kept a white goat that he named Columbia, which he walked around Washington, D.C., wearing a blanket covered in Masonic pins and ribbons. The goat still wasn't actually part of fraternal rights. Instead, they were used specifically to reiterate that the public would never actually know about their secrets. It was a way of mocking the public's feudal fascination with their rights, right? So that it's kind of like, oh, you think we got a goat? Look at we we do have a goat, but you don't know what this goat's for. You think you know what this goat's for, but it's not actually about that, right? 
but what about the mechanical goat? <laughs> so where does the mechanical goat come into this? Moore argues that in the 19-teens and 20s, men were feeling suffocated by the overly formal Victorian rituals and ceremonies of these fraternal orders, and were increasingly in need of escape from the suffocation of modern society. We've talked about this before many times. Um, I think it at the very least in our episode on the, the conservation movement during the Gilded Age, um, about how many men around the turn of the century and just after were diagnosed with this um, disease called neurasthenia and how the cure was for nervous men to find masculinizing ways to expend their energy. So men played football, they went out west and hunted bison, they camped out in the Adirondack, they took up bodybuilding and boxing, and of course they went to war. In other words, they became Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> men also, of course, joined fraternal orders, and those already in fraternal orders began to reshape their rights to better reflect the new demands of 20th century masculinity. Instead of making men face their sinfulness and be reborn symbolically, orders began to embrace actually breaking down their initiates using shame and mockery, only, the, only to then reward the real men who made it through that initiation with the honors of fraternity. Hazing. Yes. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Literally. Now, the goat came to yet another use. Toy companies manufactured mechanical goats, which initiates would have to ride if they wanted in. Like we mentioned before, the mechanical goat was deliberately made to not ride smoothly. It would bump and dip and shake as the man rode it. Some were even made to occasionally fling a man off if he wasn't careful. <laughs> the directions for one goat included specifics for how to get a man on it. So here are the directions, right? Quote, to seat rider, have attendants pull candidates legs apart. Thrust animal's head between them and slowly bear down on handle. Then you send him teetering, galloping, flying, trotting, bucking around the room until between tears and laughter, you're forced to desist. The end. Right? So this, <laughs> right. this is how you use this thing. Yeah, exactly. um, this particular goat also had a bladder that you could fill with water so you could spray the humiliated <laughs> man too if you really wanted to. So, um, <laughs> so I don't know about you but that whole description kind of sounds like very sexual yes, right it he's sounds very bucking sexual. and riding and yeah writhing and whatever yeah, right you have to force his legs apart right. and thrust a goat head in between yeah them it sounds a little then you like, squirt him with some kind of rapey, mysterious yeah. liquid <laughs> yeah you squirt him with apparently water which i but i feel like right. they would be like let's put pee in this or whatever yeah you, you know you just yeah you or can it imagine ejaculation right? exactly yeah. you can just imagine all of the like horrible exactly. iterations yes. that that took, right? right. Um, goats were the centerpiece, but they weren't the only tool of humiliation. So fraternal orders purchased all sorts of strange devices to use um, to trick or prank their initiates, including canvases that they would use to pop initiates in the air, like parachute in gym class. Yeah, which, where you like? Oh, I was always so bummed because I couldn't. I was like on the taller side at the time, and mm. I couldn't be one of the ones who was popped up. They would always pick, like, little tiny people. Right, right, right. And be yeah. like, oh, here. And I was always so I don't so think bummed. they ever let us put actual kids in Oh, them. we put actual kids really? in them. And I think we put balls in them. Well, once we got to middle school, we just would put it behind, put the parachute all behind us and sit down and we'd be in a big tent. Oh, yeah, That was yes. our favorite. But we did used to put little kids on them back before parents cared about their <laughs> that kids, That seems I guess. like a bad idea. I know. 
Um, so, yeah, so they would do these kind of canvases that they would parachute people up, right? Or they would have paddles that they might use to spank a new member, right? Which, that's, like, a huge thing in Greek life, isn't that's, it? I, in yeah. my discussion, yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, riding the goat, like all forms of humiliation, was a way of testing a man's resolve. Also, importantly, whether he could laugh at himself. Yeah, but it's... That- so, the spanking, yeah, I, I thought the same thing, right? That it's the the paddles i mean fraternities often have like a specially made paddle mm-hmm. that's like i don't know um carved or something with like the name of the frat or something that right. they use to like spank their initiates right um and something that i really wanted to do in this episode and i just there was so there was way more material than i thought in terms of this cultural analysis of fraternal orders that i sort of ran out of time and and space, but I really did want to get into frats. How all of this kind of fraternal order thing turns into the, these rights that are used by frats. Mm-hmm. This hazing idea, right? Like, yeah, and it's weird that I mean, I feel like the earlier versions, like the ceremonies, I feel like that could have been there could have been an element of hazing to that as well. Like, yeah, you have to remember like the words you have to use. You yes. have to dress a certain way and like do the ritual correctly or yeah. whatever. And, and then were, if you didn't, you were a jerk and you, yeah, and you were you kept know. blindfolded and you were like walked around. And so if you like messed any of that up, you mm-hmm. know, you would you would look like an idiot. You right. Know. So in that sense, I feel like the hazing part of it was kind of a part of mm-hmm. it the whole time. Right. It seems like. You know, but also, it, your ability to get in wasn't actually, like, the the ritual, your ability to perform the ritual well wasn't actually what was going to dictate whether you got in at that point, mm-hmm. like, early in the 19th century. That was, like, kind of already predetermined. Like, the right. ritual was sort of like, okay, like, you need to go through this and then you'll be a real member. Right. Because they'd already, like, vetted you. Like, they already right. knew, like, you were, you were a good man, you were the bank manager, like, you were going to get in. But... I, that's not how frats work now. You have to actually survive right. the right. Whatever, but I think pledging. really similar to frats would be like if you had messed it up. That's something that everyone's going to make fun of for like ever. Right. You know, right. like oh yeah, like just you know, like the goat thing. Yes. I mean, the, it was just like this random thing. Like hey, wink, wink. Like goats, you know. Right. But really, there is no thing to know. But that's what you know. Exactly. Right. And um. I think at one point, William Moore, um, the historian who wrote about the riding the goat, um, talks about how part of the appeal of actually riding the goat, like these mechanical goats, was that, like, you participated. Like, you allowed yourself to ride the goat because you knew that once you rode the goat and you got in, you would be making some other mm-hmm. ride the goat. Right? And that's the same thing as hazing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. well, I... This reminds me... You know what it was making me think of is exams and PhD yeah. programs. Right. Well, I went through this. Yeah. Like, now you have to go through it to exactly. be a part of the club. Right. It's a gatekeeping thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're right. The earlier versions, like the 18th century versions, the gatekeeping probably happened beforehand right. when they're like, okay, well, what's your, you know, what what is your uh, standing in society, that sort of thing. Right. So the actual gatekeeping... You know, so the ceremony was just kind of something that you all could share together and bond over whatever and make fun of each other over. But it didn't actually, it wasn't part of the gatekeeping. Right. And whereas, like, yeah, that that makes sense. So then by the 20th century, that kind of all changed. Right. That's weird. I would love to know more about 
I, I would love to read sort of like cultural analyses of like Greek life hazing and like what what that's about. Like mm-hmm. that's just it's really weird. It's really weird. Yeah, but it's I mean, really it can be similar. Incredibly violent. I mean, somebody a, a student at UB died right after a, yeah. an, an event or after something some aspect of the pledge um, process. Like right. people die all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so very similar in many, many different places and among many different organizations. Mm-hmm. So it's like, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Like, they're, part of it, I think, is just like a sociological, like, you know, making peer groups and exclusion right. yes. and stuff like that. Yes. Some of it is just that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think that that another thing is just the very how important the history of it is so like in greek life you know um a lot of times they'll have like uh pictures of i don't know all the presidents or the initiates or whatever right right. you know for the last 20 years or whatever and they have like a handbook that like has their history in it and everybody you know you you hope to be like you know one of the foremost people in mm-hmm. your great in your house or whatever and you do something stupid that'll go down in history forever and 30 mm-hmm. years from now mm-hmm. the new initiates will be learning about you know how you right. peed on someone's tv or something you right, know, like right, something right. St- stupid yeah. Yeah. like there's this whole like mythology it, re- it. <laughs> it reminds me in a really stupid way of i just finished rewatching the office recently and and the beef between andy bernard and the guy that was in his acapella group with him, whose name I can't remember right now, um, over, like, which one of them actually earned the nickname the Boner Champ. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. Because reason. Andy's like, no, I'm the Boner Champ. And it was because of such and such. And the other guy's like, no, I'm the Boner Champ. Like, everybody called me the Boner Champ. And, like, it's all about that kind of thing. Because they haven't been at Cornell in, like, 15 years but it's really important to them that the current acapella group at cornell remembers which one of them was the boner champ uh-huh. you know what i mean yeah 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 it's really strange it's weird one of the other things that struck me as i was writing this is that right now we are living in this moment where we talk a lot about fragile masculinity mm-hmm. and i think that this kind of was a reminder for me that like fragile masculinity is really old yeah. You know, and that it's not like there's not something particularly in our moment that's like, oh, and now suddenly we have this fragile masculinity. It's right. like, no, we go through like constant reimaginations of what the what is the fragile in the fragile masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was really struck by this idea that the Second Great Awakening made men like made their wieners shovel up because women suddenly had this kind of larger role mm-hmm. in Protestant Christianity. And so they were like, well, got to go to the Masonic Lodge and right. like have my angry goddad yell at me for a little while so I feel better about my masculinity. Right. This is wild. Yeah. All kinds of weird. It's that made it, makes it sound very Freudian. Yes. When, when it with the Mark parents Hearns talks thing. about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't 100 percent buy into the whole Freud thing, but that really is does sound like that. Like yeah. you need to be punished by your yeah. by your father because you're a bad boy. Yeah. And like <laughs> so and but but somehow that is like it's masculinizing yeah. for you and restores your yes. your your injured ego. Yes. It's really strange. There uh, and and current this book was published in 1988 and so I'm sure that there's 
it, you know, people out there listening would probably be like, oh, but, you know, there's been this corrective to that book since then. And there's been this new research that I'm just as an outsider not aware of. But um, it was published in 1988 when I think Freudian historical analysis was a little bit more common. And so Carnes will say these things like, if I was going to do a Freudian analysis, mm-hmm. I would say blah, blah, blah. And like very much what you right. just said. But yeah. he's like, but I don't want to do that here. <laughs> but I kind of do. Right. So he keeps kind of like throwing it out there. But then he's like, yeah. but we can't really, we can't really do that. And so he kind of steps away from it. Right. But I think that that's a good, it's still a really good point. There's something sort of psychologically going on there, right? right. I mean, but, all this stuff about the fathers parts, and... The father part of it, though, that happens at a time when people are very concerned about um, psychopathology. Mm-hmm. Like, in the, ni- the late 19th century, when this kind of turns into, um, instead of, a ra- like, a some random initiation into kind of a hazing situation, mm-hmm. that is actually right when psychopathology became, started yeah, to become yeah, a thing. absolutely. That's when Freud started his career. Right. And, you know, the t- early 20th century is when everything became Freudian, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so yeah, and I so think it makes you, sense to think of it that way because people who yeah. lived it would have thought of it that so way. So when you consider that it's during maybe a little bit after that in the 19 teens and twenties, uh, but still when Freud is mm-hmm. writing, right. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's when you have like the manufacturing of these paddles. Right. Right. So that yeah. like, you're going to join the Masonic temple and mm-hmm. they're going to spank you in order to let you in. Like, what the hell is that about? Right. Because to us, we're like spanking is still like this very i mean people fetishize spanking right Right. so it's there's something very kind of sexualized about it but also infantilizing about it oh yeah um that's like the i think when you're two to three years old is when you when you deal with that sort of like i don't know butt related sex stuff (laughs) stuff. (laughs) when you're like being potty trained Uh it's like when anal fixation yeah Mm -hmm. that sort of thing like so that yeah it's very um strange they're you know buying what freud is selling 110 percent yeah in the 19 teens that's like starts to be how everybody thinks about Mm -hmm. sexuality in this kind of psychopathological way right 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 and even if you and even if freud has been sort of you know, is is kind of pushed by the wayside at this point. I think that even without a Freudian al- analysis, you can look at that and say, gee, Willikers, what's that about? That, like, grown men are actually welcoming the opportunity to go in and let other grown men who are, like, pillars of the community to, like, spank them yeah. in order to have the privilege of calling themselves an odd fellow. Like, there's yeah. still something psychologically there. Yeah. Right? And even think... if you don't buy into, like, the butt phase. Right. No, I think that um, being vulnerable with people, um, that creates a really strong bond. And so I think yeah. that that is part of it, yeah. is that if you are willing to have this, like, vulnerable moment, mm-hmm. whether it's hazing mm-hmm. and, you know, drinking something without barfing, but then mm-hmm. you barf anyway, so you suck, or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever, like, right. putting yourself in those situations where you're vulnerable and you're being tested, mm-hmm. that builds bonds with people. Um, so I think... You know, it's sort of, I don't know, it makes me think of, like, BDSM. There's something about being vulnerable and right. being being hurt by someone or being demeaned by someone right. that is beneficial to a bond. It's strange. Right. It's a weird thing. That's absolutely a major part of of BDSM, right? Of, right. of that, that kink is being... 
vulnerable and being at someone else's mercy, right? And that being kind of a, there's a bond between those two people. That's not, mm-hmm. it's not just like you hire a rando to like. Right. It's built on trust. Yes, too. absolutely. Right. Yeah. So I think that that, oh. that those kind of, it's kind of like a trust building exercise. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which, yeah. back to the office. I feel like at times. Right. In the office, they don't they do, they, they go to like a thing at one point where they do a trust building exercise. And of course, inevitably, someone is supposed to catch someone and they just like don't. It's like probably Meredith or something. Oh, it's just like, I yeah, swear probably. it happened, but I can't remember. I remember they go on the leadership retreat to Gettysburg and they have to go on like the, they trek around the battlefield. Um, but, I, I mean, you can apply this to anything. I mean, or to many, many things, right? Like, we already mentioned, like, exams mm-hmm. very much like this. Like, you – even the process of getting a PhD, right, you go through, like, with your comrades and your cohort becomes, like, often becomes really tight because you went through this process together. But even, like, basic training when you just join the military, say that. Yeah. right? Like, right. it's this – it's intentionally designed to break you down in a way – and then sort of rebuild you as someone who fits into this. Yeah. It's break down your individuality society. and make you part of this sort of right. corporate body of right. whatever. Right. Yeah. And that is, there is something really interesting and strange about that too. When you think about how, you know, fraternal orders are doing that in the United States in the 19th century, when we're also really focused on this kind of individualistic idea of how people succeed in life, right? Like this Horatio Alger thing, Mm -hmm. like where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all men are the masters of their own destinies. And in a way you see that reflected in the 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 kind of pseudo theology that comes out of them that like only your industriousness is, is what is going to get you the ability to unlock the secrets of God, which will allow for your salvation. Mm -hmm. So you still do see some of that individuality. Yeah. But the idea of breaking down individuality and then putting you into this order as a non-individual yeah is weird there's lots of contradictions i think it comes from the 18th century and this this feeling of individuality is kind of coming from this adam smith um Mm -hmm. uh what's his name um the other one malthus that malthusian sort Mm -hmm. of thing like you have to compete to get to the top make your own way that sort of thing that was that kind of started in the 18th century, and then we also had this individualism um, of, like, the French Revolution and all that stuff. Right. Um, every single man, um, you know, deserves a certain amount right. of liberty and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, at that exact time is when, as Those we'll orders, see in yeah. April's episode Absolutely. and in my episode, people become obsessed with the idea of these corporate um i say corporate not as like a corporation like a business i mean corp like um collective Mm -hmm. like a collective of people who are like kind of brainwashed into like doing all the same things right they become obsessed with that right i think it's so interesting and so they join those orders in record numbers during and they found new ones during that time period um and like i said like the masons already have lodges in the United States, in the colonies, in, like, the 1730s. Yeah, I believe it. Um, because during the, the 18th century, people were, like, super into this right. lodge thing. And in my episode, we'll see that in the 18th century is exactly when people started becoming interested in the Hashashin. Because they're, like, mm-hmm. it's a- another example of this uh-huh. collective order of assassins who are, like, Ooh. kind of brainwashed with hashish into, like, doing all of these things. They're <laughs> obsessed with the idea of it. Yeah. And, but it's so it's the exact opposite of what they're advocating for politically right. and economically. It's so strange. Yes, whatever. Very strange. You're right. Contradictions. Yeah, Nate, that's yeah. the 
the the word of the day. Well, I, I feel like that was an episode that it pulled lots of weird things together, but hopefully it made sense. It was really fun to learn all of this stuff. And now I have lots more things that I want to do an episode on the history of fraternities. Cause I had some articles pulled up that I just wasn't able to pull in about, you know, male friendship and, and fratern- fraternities and how they got founded at, at colleges and what they, how they morphed over time. So yeah. College would ones a, would be really cool. Like next time we come and... back to this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for us for today. Um, Check out our website, digpodcast.org. Find us on Facebook, dig underscore history. Mm -hmm. Twitter, dig underscore history. Um, And if you haven't yet, join our um, not-so-secret order, which is our Facebook page, Dig History Pod Squad, uh, where people just come and we kind of share memes and we joke and we chat about various, you know, television shows and whatever. It's it's become really a fun uh, community. Right. And ask silly questions. Yes. Whatever. Um, And if you want to join the, the conversation about a certain episode, that's a great way to do it as well. Or give us feedback back on an episode too um you can if you want to you know get in touch with us in a different way you can email it uh, email us at hello at digpodcast.org what are we forgetting and check out our patreon yes we love you give us your money basically okay bye all right farewell brotherhood and camaraderie because i'm so buffalo <laughs> camaraderie <laughs> it did. um the odd fellows kept far tighter control on things. <laughs> Kept okay. far tighter control. I know. On <laughs> okay. On, on things. <laughs> quiet, restrained, tasteful, and quiet. <laughs> quiet, restrained, tasteful, and quiet. <laughs> I didn't even realize. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for sticking to the script so <laughs> diligently. <laughs> tells the story of how two printer's apprentices <laughs> of course fraternal orders were also homosocial spaces spaces <laughs> i did individual individuality the order created what philip deloria calls a usable past usable past <laughs> i sound like a <laughs> In her research, Flugrad Jackish, you you spell her name different each time, and you wrote immortal instead of immoral, so hang on. I'm getting... Stuff it in your butt. No, I'm just getting confused. It's very confusing that I have a C in there. William Seward. Seward? Well, how do you say it? Seward? (laughs) Seward. Seward. Did that make sense? Yes. (gasps) I know. It's like loudest. Are you watching Supernatural instead of listening to us? No. I've never seen Supernatural. I'm rewatching every episode. I'm rewatching every episode of More Dark Mysteries. This one's terrible. Oh, his name was Broccoli Rob. No, it was not. Yeah, yeah. The um, whose name was Broccoli Rob? Um, the Andy Bernard, the guy oh, who was like that's a stupid was, name. They were fighting over who was the boner champ. It was Broccoli Rob. For some reason I don't remember that. Okay.